When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alfonso, welcome to Real Vision. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, Jack. Yeah, so for people at home, Alfonso Pecatiello is the head of fixed income portfolio management at ING Germany. Uh, that is your day job. I, I understand, Alfonso, you are also a fearsome blogger at the Macro Compass. Yes. Well, I started this uh, nice side project to write in this free macro newsletter about a month ago. I was active on LinkedIn before, just posting my macro thoughts out there. So it was going good. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to move to Substack and do it a little bit more professionally. Let's call it a little bit more organized via newsletter, which is called the Macro Compass. So here I am speaking basically on behalf of myself. Uh, I do manage uh, money professionally, uh, but I'm here only representing myself, not my employer. Yeah, you know, I read a lot of macro blogs and there's a clarity and a concision in your writing that I think is rare because a lot of people don't actually work in true finance. They're sort of on the periphery. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey in finance? How did you get into being a fixed income portfolio manager? Yeah, so it basically started when I was, I think, 14 or 15 years old. That's the first memory I have. Uh, it starts in the family because my mother my mother is a treasurer of a small bank. And I was at you know high school or mid school, whatever you call that in the US. And she was coming back for lunch break and we had this computer on the on the on the kitchen table while eating and she was looking at this future and all that stuff and i'm like you know what is that so she was trying to explain to me and i got really interested in it and then started doing my own research then chose economics at the university and quantitative finance and option pricing and stuff like that and you know then i just ended up in there but it all started by curiosity effectively and the journey was then pretty quick because I started uh, as a fixed income analyst and then moved to portfolio manager and then moved to basically, well, fixed income credits, multi-asset in general, uh, head of the portfolio management uh, business at uh, ING Germany. Yeah, and I should say you, you manage about $20 billion is, is my understanding. Um, yeah. For the people at, at home, I just want to ask, what drew you to fixed income and credit? Why not equities? Why not options? What was it about the world of bonds that allured you? Well, I think a couple of things. The first is when um, when you read, um, let's say, the first books, for example, Steve Trotney interviews to hedge fund managers. You learn a lot from these books. And one of the things that you learn is that, I don't remember exactly who said that, but the quote is amazing. It says, if, if, you know, if I could be uh, born again and be really wanted to be influential, I'd like to be born again as the bond market. And I'm like, wow, what is that? Why is that? So you then understand that uh, a lot of people out there assign a lot of uh, you know, uh, importance to what the bond market is telling you, to what inflation expectations are telling you, because they are effectively the linchpin of our monetary system. And they, are, they represent the risk-free forward pricing, basically, which then is used as discount rates also for, also for risk assets cash flows. And therefore, they do influence also a bunch of other asset classes. So I just wanted to be in the place that I thought had the most influence in terms of asset class pricing over the markets, which then ended up being fixed income. And that's why I started there. You said uh, you referenced the quote if, that the bond market was very powerful. Do you think that is still the case? Because I think the theory you were referencing was that if governments are lavish, uh, exorbitant, they run large deficits, they don't tax enough, they, um, that the bond market will punish them and that bonds will sell off, uh, bond vigilantes will sell bonds and yields will spike. Uh, could you share your thoughts on that theory? And do you think that we're still living in that world? So let me start from the very beginning. I have a little bit of a different view, I think, of our monetary system than the average person is out there. So one of the myths that I always like to debunk first when I start laying my macro view is that um, central banks are the most powerful entities out there 
they do control market pricing and they actually print money. Okay, so you just take that idea, you look at the closest bin you have close to your desk and you actually throw it there because it's just not true. So, uh, then, you know, the whole fixed income market is nowadays influenced by the idea that central banks are basically infinitely powerful, right? Because they do print money, therefore they control the money supply, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'd like to debunk that myth before we move into the overall macro view and, you know, what's going on in markets. So if you look at this chart that I took from uh, one of Bank, Bank of England papers, but you can look at many other uh, academic papers out there, they were mostly produced after the great financial crisis where the, you know, the first large instance of quantitative easing in developed markets was uh, launched by the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, there was a Japanese experience. People really didn't understand that. But once the U.S. did that as well, uh, I mean, that quantitative easing, people started paying attention. So the Bank of England here shows in this stylized example how quantitative easing works and why that has nothing to do with printing money. Now, uh, the, you should read this chart from the left to the right. So before asset purchase, that's the left side of the graph. And after asset purchase, that's the right side of the graph. So if you start from the middle and then the left side, before asset purchase and central bank, you can see, you know, that a central bank in this stylized example has assets and as, as liabilities as reserves. That's the green small stack. Now, after they go with quantitative easing, so asset purchase, what happens is that on the asset side, they will have a purple stock overlaid, which is government debt that they have bought as an asset during QE, and they have swapped that asset away from a pension fund by simply creating reserves. So the liability side of the central bank balance sheet actually increases, the, the green stock becomes bigger. So these are more bank reserves that are created by the central banks to purchase government debt. Now this government debt, the purple stock was owned before, and that's top left of the graph by, let's say a pension fund in this example. Now this pension fund is basically forcefully uh, uh, exchanged their previously owned government bond, the purple stock, into a red stock, which is deposits. So effectively, the central bank has swapped the asset side of the balance sheet, of the pension fund, from bonds, government debt that they owned before, into deposits. That's a red stack. And they've done that by creating reserves on the liability side of the central bank balance sheet, not outside inflationary form of money. They have created reserves. That's completely another thing. Now, why does the commercial bank, uh, which is the lower side of the graph, even enters the equation? Is because the pension fund that now owns deposits simply cannot own deposits overnight, but these deposits need to be basically parked at a, uh, in the banking system. So the commercial bank from the left side of the, uh, of the graph to the right side after asset purchase will now own more deposits, which are the result of a pension fund effectively uh, being now forced to own deposits rather than bonds. And the commercial bank will own more reserves as well on the asset side part back at the central bank balance sheet. Now, the theory behind uh, central bank prints money also stands on the fact that the commercial bank is going to take these reserves and is going to probably lend them out. This is the money multiplier uh, theory, let's say. Now, the point is bank reserves cannot be lent out. They have just nothing to do with lending decisions from a bank. Bank reserves are simply an interbank mechanism to transfer reserves from a bank to another. The bank reserves are supplied by the central bank, depending on the need that the commercial banks have to expand their loan book or not expand the loan book. But the decision whether to expand the loan book is completely independent from the amount of bank reserves. And I think the second graph shows it very well, Jack. This is what happened in Japan between 2000 and 2007, where the BOJ went into quantitative easing that increased the base money, the monetary base, that's the red uh, line. So reserves actually from Bank of Japan went up. But please have a look at what happened to bank loans in the meantime. So bank loans actually shrank by 25%. They were indexed at 100 in 1999, they ended up at 75. So down 25% eight years later, despite the amount of bank reserves available in the commercial bank system had actually doubled at some point up until 2006. So that is the case because uh, commercial banks do not lend out reserves. They just need these reserves to service payments and to settle interbank payment systems, but those reserves are not lent out. So the central bank can create reserves 
but the central bank does not print money. The central bank creates inside forms of money, which are bank reserves, and those have nothing to do with the inflationary outside form of money, which is rather created by a bank lending or by the government printing net deficits. Alfonso, thank you for that. What are some commonly held beliefs that stem from that misconception um, which you think are absolutely wrong. So for example, if you think that quantitative easing uh, you know, prints money, then you would think that quantitative easing is inflationary. Do you think it's inflationary? You also hear that the quantitative easing is stimulative, perhaps if not to the real economy, then to asset markets. And you know, I could put up a chart of the S&P 500 and the Fed balance sheet, and they're the, you know, there's a, uh, a correlation there, if not a causation. So do you think quantitative easing is inflationary? And do you think it is stimulative, A, to the real economy, and B, to asset markets? No, the correlation between quantitative easing and inflation is at best zero but most likely negative. So I believe at best it's, it has no impact on inflationary pressures, and at worst it has a slightly negative impact because it basically drives misallocation of capital, which reduces productivity of this capital, which over the long term reduces the, basically the real potential growth of an economy by effectively encouraging misallocation of capital. But let's assume for now the correlation is just zero for simplicity. And the reason I say that is that uh, by what, again, what quantitative easing does, it, it, it just swaps existing asset side of banks, insurance companies, pension funds from a certain percentage of bond holdings to a certain percentage of reserves holdings. So these, these asset managers on the asset side, they don't have bonds anymore, they rather have reserves now. So that's what it does effectively. That's, that's the only thing that quantitative easing immediately does. How is this supposed to be inflationary is based on the theory that some of these reserves will be lent out by the commercial banking system. So at some point, the so-called money velocity will actually increase, right? That's the old theory behind. And we are now justifying the fact that inflation is not coming out of QE by reversing this rationale as saying that money velocity is shrinking. And that is the reason. And sooner, this implies that sooner or later, this money velocity will have to pick up and therefore we will see inflationary pressure. Now. As I said before, the entities that are able to create money are commercial banks and uh, governments by net deficit. So when a bank lends money, it literally creates new inflationary form of money out of nowhere. But the problem is that banks don't lend reserves. They just extend new loans when they want to. And the real question you have to ask yourself, Jack, is when does a bank want to extend credit? What are the requirements? Do they need to own a gazillion reserves? Does this help them to lend? No. What helps them to lend is actually two things. The return on equity they will generate on the loan and the perceived credit worthiness of your borrower. Now, what quantitative easing does, it also lowers risk-free real interest rates. And by doing that, the absolute yield that a bank makes on a loan, those loans are mostly priced as a spread or a credit spread above risk-free real interest rates, right? So if you do a mortgage or if you do a consumer loan or a corporate loan, it's often priced as a spread on top of this risk-free real interest rate. Now, if these real interest rates are very low, as a byproduct of QE, the absolute yield on these loans is also pretty low. If that is the case, the bank has always to put capital against this loan. So yes, a commercial bank is capital constrained before uh, uh, doing the loan. But if the absolute yield is very poor, then also the return on equity is going to be very poor. And a bank, a commercial bank, is not going to expand their balance sheet if their return on equity on the marginal expansion of the balance sheet is pretty low. So if yields go down and risk-free real interest rates are very low, and the world becomes more and more leveraged, therefore the implied credit worthiness of your borrowers also goes down at the same moment, why would a commercial bank extend credit to the real economy, so create inflationary form of money, if the return on equity is very poor against a perceived increase of risk from the borrower perspective. And that shows as well why Japan, Japanese banks during QE have not expanded their loan book. Uh, American banks have not expanded their loan books that much. European banks, the same story. So the commercial banking system is not lending out because regulation is very tight, capital requirements are very tight, and absolute yields on these loans are very low, so the return on equity you make back spending your balance sheet is pretty mediocre. So if quantitative easing doesn't do what people think it does, why do central bankers do it at all? What is, what is their purpose? 
Yeah. So uh, if you have a, well, their purpose is just to kick the can down the road, I guess, at some point. And, uh, you know, how this, how the whole monetary system works is that you have effectively a structural uh, driver of long-term real GDP growth. Actually, you have a couple of drivers, I would say. Uh, one big driver is demographics and the other driver is productivity. So if you look at the graph that I just pointed out here, uh, year-on-year labor supply growth estimates for different economies, you can see that this driver of structural growth uh, in the world is actually turning negative year-on-year in basically uh, all over the world in developed markets especially. So if you look at these charts, when it goes into negative territory, it means the labor supply is actually turning negative. So basically your age bracket 15 to 64 to make it easy is actually shrinking on a year on year basis. So if you have a shrinking population and you had that in Japan and in Europe, I think uh, looking at the chart starting in 2010 already, but now also America uh, has joined the party to have a negative uh, labor supply growth year on year, you only have to rely on productivity to try and push your real structural GDP growth into positive territory, which America can do just a tiny bit. So my estimate for uh, potential real GDP growth in America is just above zero, but in Europe, it's even negative. In any case, zero or slightly negative real GDP growth on a sustained potential basis is not appealing at all. What we like to do is to grow. We like to grow, right? We like to grow our purchasing power, our wages, our nominal growth, anything, right? That's what the system is based on. So to achieve that, what we thought of doing is rather to borrow from future consumption and to lever up such that today we can overlay some cyclical growth on this very poor structural growth that I already discussed. And this has led to what you see in this other chart that represents global debt GDP. And for global debt, I mean all sectors debt. Because people tend to identify that only with government debt, but you have to look as well at the private sector. Private sector is very, very important in this equation. If you sum up government debt and private debt all over the world, you reach a whopping amount of 365%. Now, uh, 365% of GDP. Now, GDP is a stock measure. And in order to service your debt, you should compare this, this debt notional against your cash flows or your tax receipts if you're a government, and there the situation looks even worse. So that in that moment, quantitative easing comes in because the only way to keep this uh, system afloat where we borrow from future consumption in order to overlay cyclical growth on a very, very poor uh, structural growth driven by horrible demographics, by stagnant productivity, by technology, and so on and so forth, is to lower real interest rates. And this is also the reason why quantitative easing is there. Quantitative easing accommodates the process of money creation and credit creation by commercial banks and by the government. It does not drive it, it accommodates the process such that we can keep on doing that and we can lower real interest rates to an acceptable level so that these huge debt burdens can be sustained. And the proof of that is in this other chart that I pulled on that shows US debt to GDP inverted on the left-hand scale so the more negative it goes, the more debt America is taken on compared to GDP and US 30-year real interest rates. So this is a nominal interest rate subtract from inflation expectations. Now, you can see it for yourself, right? The more debt we take on, the more the market or the authorities will try to push nominal yields uh, below inflation expectation to the point where today, 30-year government bonds in America yield about 2% which is also supposed to be a sustainable level of inflation in America. So real interest rates are at 0%. And when you have a quadrillion of debt, but you, your real servicing costs are zero, and you can refinance your debt the whole time and pay 0% real coupons, then of course you have less problems or, or, or less, you know, less pressure, let's say, to uh, revert some of your resources towards paying coupons because your real coupon is 0%, even on a third year basis. So quantitative easing is the adding to central bank balance sheets of treasuries, sovereign bonds, and, and mortgage-backed securities. So it makes sense that when the central bank buys bonds, the yields on those will decline. That's what you mean when you say accommodation. My question is, to what degree um, do, you, do you find it interesting that often during the greatest periods of quantitative easing, yields have actually been rising? Yeah. So here you have to, I think, um, look at different parts of the curve for, for answering this question correctly, Jack. So uh, 
What Kiwi also does is that, in principle, it is supposed as well to stimulate inflation expectation down the road. So the theory goes that when a central bank is accommodating now, today, and keeps an accommodative stance despite the economy maybe is already booming back, inflation expectation down the road should be going up. When they go up down the road, nominal yields can also go up and the curve can steepen. That is generally the first phase of quantitative easing. Qualitative easing comes in, it accommodates, it eases financial conditions, it supposedly seeds the ground for future nominal growth being higher, that gets priced into long-end inflation expectation being higher, and that means that long-end forward yields can also be pushed higher in a relatively sustainable basis. While the front-end of the yield curve is, uh, let's say, less impacted by that because the central bank is generally more interested in controlling the monetary transmission mechanism at the front end. So nominal yields via forward guidance and via QE itself actually remain compressed. Inflation expectations start picking up down the road. So uh, inflation swap traders, but also the whole market starts to expect a higher nominal growth down the road. And therefore the curve steepens because you know the long end Nominal yields can be driven higher by these expectations, but the front end remains relatively anchored. What happens, though, when the central bank try to pivot towards a more hawkish stance, which is what has happened, let's say, you can argue in June, when Powell watered down his average inflation targeting commitments by saying, ah, well, you know, inflation has printed 4% a couple of times and we're looking into it a little bit more closely and maybe we should embark in tapering sooner rather than later, is the other process. So the central bank effectively starts removing accommodation or at least uh, seeding the grounds for doing so. So the bond market via euro dollar futures and via front end forwards will start to price a quicker uh, hiking cycle by the Federal Reserve. So you will have five-year nominal yields going up, but you will also have long-term inflation expectation coming down because if you expect the central bank to remove accommodation today, the impact that it will have down the road is that nominal growth will turn out to be lower, and therefore long and forward yields also have to be lower. Alfonso, you note that there are times when inflation expectations are dropping while nominal yields are going up. And you note that that can be bad for risk assets because real yields are going up for what you call are the wrong reasons. So what did you mean by that? Why do risk assets generally have a hard time? Yeah, so real yields can go up for healthy reasons or wrong reasons, as I say. For healthy reasons, it's when the market is basically projecting future real growth to be pretty strong. So real interest rates can go up. And even in an overleveraged economy, if I'm a borrower and I have to repay higher real coupons on my debt, I don't have a problem because as real economic growth is picking up on a sustainable basis, I have more cash flows. And therefore, by having better cash flow, I can service my higher real interest rate costs in an easier way. That's no problem. That's okay. Now, the unhealthy way for real yields to go up would be by unwarranted policy tightening. And that, I think, is exactly what happened when Powell turned a little bit more hawkish at the last June meeting, because if, if real yields go up as the result of inflation expectation dropping, but nominal yields going up, what the market is basically telling you is that by repricing nominal yields higher, they're expecting the central bank effectively to become more hawkish, right, to tighten the monetary policy. But by repricing also inflation expectation lower, they're telling you this is some sort of a policy mistake effectively. Because they're telling you, yes, Federal Reserve, I see what you're doing. I'm going to put the euro dollar futures in higher yields, let's say. So I'm going to reprice a hiking path in a more aggressive way. But I'm also going to reprice inflation expectation lower as a result. Because if you do that, the economy cannot take it. The economy cannot withstand it. We don't have a structural growth which is strong enough to sustain these higher real interest rates that you're actually trying to impose on us. Now, if that happens, basically what, you, what will happen is that over-leveraged corporates that sit in the triple B cohort or high-yield corporates, some of these guys have seven times leverage in their books, right? If they have to sustain higher real interest rate costs to refinance their debt, but the economy is not on a better path in terms of producing better cash flows, real cash flows on a sustainable basis for them to service this debt, what will happen is that they will be in trouble. And investors will recognize that and a vicious circle will happen where investors will simply withdraw their, as I call them, touristic longs in these assets. So they were most likely picking uh, nickels in front of the steamrollers. They will withdraw support from these 
you know, over-leveraged corporates and all this risky cohort and will reallocate their capital towards risk-free assets, which are offering at that stage a higher real interest rate, which is risk-free. You know, so there is this vicious circle that real interest rates in this over-leveraged economy can go up just by a tiny bit, but only if they are sustained by a very strong uh, reflationary uh, real economic growth. And this this is supposed to be seen on a sustainable basis. If that is not there and real yields are going up, they're going up for unhealthy reasons and risk assets can't take it. And how do you apply that framework when evaluating the bull fl- the flattening of the yield curve that we've seen since the June's FOMC meeting where the party at the short end of the curve is over with yields rising there, where it looks like it's pretty smooth sailing on the long end of the curve with you know, U.S. yields of 10, 20, 30s actually declining. Uh, do you think that that is sustainable? And how is it making you think about asset allocations to bonds as well as risk assets? Yeah. So I think what the market is trying to tell uh, the Federal Reserve is that they spot this trend that has been going on basically since the great financial crisis, where we basically pump credit, real inflationary form of money into the system by a net deficit than bank lending. We do that. And therefore, uh, after 12 months, with a lag of between 8 to 12 months, this credit flows into the real economy. Earnings go up. We have reflationary impulses. Uh, as you can see in the chart that I uh, created up here, I calculated something called G5 credit impulse. And that is basically the acceleration in credit creation all over the world. So this is public credit creation, net deficits, private credit creation, mostly bank lending, summed up together, looked at G5. So not only China credit impulse, but also adding up US, Europe, and all the G5 countries. You create a credit impulse metric as percentage of GDP. It tells you how much acceleration in credit creation has been there. That's a blue line in the graph. And then you can overlay this series that I created with basically all risk assets out there. Uh, that tells you as well that achieving diversification in this market is very complicated, but most risk assets from uh, industrial commodities to, in this chart, I made it with inflation expectations because I think that leads a lot of asset classes out there. And you can see that with a lag of 12 months, inflation expectation in America change according to this global credit impulse uh, series. So look at what happened in 2020. We printed an immense amount of money, mostly by U.S. fiscal deficits, but also by government-guaranteed bank lending. So credit, check, real economy credit flow into the economy. Uh, earnings went up at some point. There is a lag. In this case, it's 12 months. And inflation expectation go up as a result. Earnings are higher. S&P is higher. You know, everything is fantastic. The typical reflation trade. But as you can see, this happened as well in the past. It happened in 2013, it happened in 2015-16, it happened in 2018. There was a small blip there, as you can see. That's the Trump fiscal stimulus, effectively. But after each one of these episodes, there is always a fiscal cliff, a credit cliff, not only fiscal, but also from a bank lending perspective. This is because it is basically impossible to keep the second derivative of credit growth always on a positive basis. It would mean that, for example, America this year would have to print a larger amount of money than it did last year to keep this acceleration still higher. Well, it's just not possible. So by definition, you always have a fiscal cliff, a credit cliff. And as you can see, this credit cliff, this blue line actually precedes an inflation expectation dropping. And if inflation expectation drop, then the bond market is probably going to reprice. It has already started doing so. The high beta portion of the risk asset classes, so high beta, emerging market FX, or industrial commodities like lumber, we have seen already picking or even declining in some of these assets. And, you know, I think we stand exactly in this quadrant of my macro compass. Uh, so you can look at the chart. This is a simple four quadrant structural asset allocation uh, compass that I created. I think we have moved from the quadrant three between October 20 and March 21 when the monetary policy stance was still, uh, let's say, on an easing bias, but moving slowly towards a net tightening bias, especially when measured against expectations, which were for the Fed to, have, to effectively have a hyper-strong uh, average inflation target to always keep the monetary policy easy. We were moving a little bit towards uh, the, the tightening bias, but not much. 
But what is most important is that if you look at the, uh, the upper side of this quadrant, you see credit creation. And credit creation between October 20 and March 21 was still positive. The credit impulse was still positive and growing. So we had this situation where earnings were accelerating and where, you know, uh, monetary policy was not yet uh, on an extreme net tightening basis. So you had typical real economy, low price earnings sort of stuff, rallying aggressively. So EM equities, typical stocks, you had banks rallying, you had industrial commodities rallying, and you had uh, fixed income, gold, and growth stocks actually not doing that well. Now, from this quadrant three, we're for sure moving away because the credit creation is actually decelerating. So credit creation has peaked in Q4 2020. It leads asset classes with, with a lag of between eight and 12 months. And now we know for sure this is decelerating. We are in a situation where earnings are priced to you know, the most rosy scenario you can have. Uh, average expectation for nominal US GDP this year is about 9% year on year. So most of the growth expectations are priced in. At the same time, growth and credit impulse has probably peaked, as you have seen in my graph. So now you can transition back either to quadrant one or to quadrant four. And mind you, those are really different, these quadrants. So quadrant one will be a quadrant when the Federal Reserve recognizes that the credit impulse has peaked. And this is not great timing to tighten monetary policy in an aggressive way. So if they recognize that, you move back to a net easing stance against market expectations. And in that, uh, in that quadrant one, you have the secular trends back again. So you have fixed income rallying, you have growth outperforming value, you have credit doing well, but you have industrial commodities not doing that well, high beta EM equities and FX also not doing well, and bank stocks not doing well because the curve tends to flatten and therefore financial margins are less. This seems to be the market interpretation of what happened after Powell. So if you look at the performance of Nasdaq against Russell 2000, for example, since Powell spoke, Nasdaq has outperformed. So it looks to be some sort of a benign reading where the Federal Reserve will recognize that growth has peaked and that credit impulse has peaked. And therefore, they will also take it easy with their tightening. There is quadrant four in which the Federal Reserve will just go on forward and will say, look, we just printed 850,000 NFP, U6, broad unemployment rate is below 10%. We see that the market is doing very well. We will proceed with that tightening. We'll try to take it easy, but you know, the path and the direction is very clear. And at the same time, I can tell you for sure that credit creation has decelerated. And in that moment, you have monetary policy tightening when credit creation is, is decelerating, which is the worst possible cocktail for risk assets. And then you have to try and buy some defenders, which are identified as dollar cash, VIX, or some risk assets. Yeah, this is a beautiful chart. Uh, what I note about it is that for credit creation and net tightening, both of the axes don't refer to a permanent state of nature of where credit creation is. It's about the rate of change of credit creation, the rate of change of easing or tightening by the central bank. Let's just get into credit creation. So who, how is credit creation measured? Is it measured by the banks? And I thought the banks were in great shape. How, what this chart of chart six, where you've got credit creation, the global credit impulse falling off of a cliff. How do you explain that? Yeah, well, it's mostly a mechanical uh, drop, which is always there. It's just the, the, the obvious fiscal cliff following the fiscal sugar rush, right? I mean, if last year you printed uh, 10 trillion of fiscal deficits, and then this year you come in and you print four or three, then obviously your second derivative is actually dropping. So, you know, the pace of change or the acceleration in this space is actually dropping, right? You're not, you don't continue to accelerate. You actually decelerate from a very high speed effectively, right? So as you said before, it's the pace, it's the rate of change that actually matters. And the rate of change measured on a year-on-year. So basically, you know, the year-on-year change of the year-on-year change in this case actually turns negative unless banks lend out more. So banks are not participating in this credit impulse that much. I mean, if you look at the variability of this chart, US fiscal stimulus last year accounted for like 50% of this. It was absolutely massive, right? So if banks would take the baton out of the, the federal government and they would start lending out money more aggressively and increasing their loan book, right? This would be smoothed somehow. But the evidence is that banks are not doing that. As we discussed before, they are not lending. Their return on equity on their loan books is terrible. 
the creditworthiness of over-leveraged entities out there is just not good enough for them compared to the very low uh, absolute yields they make on these loans. So for them, it doesn't make that much sense to, to lend money. So the banks are not taking the baton away from the government, and the government is obviously not able to print or not willing not willing to print 10 or 20 trillion a year to keep this credit impulse up. So mechanically, you will have a credit impulse uh, falling. And what I find interesting is that the Federal Reserve tries to basically tie the monetary policy almost every time that this global credit impulse is actually going down. So that's, that's, you know, that's what happened in 2013. That's what happened in 2018. The credit impulse had also dropped already or peaked already. And then the Federal Reserve was, uh, you know, on a hiking cycle and quantitative tightening autopilot. And then at some point, risk assets just can't take it anymore. Alfonso, can we go back to just root principles? How do you, def- uh, how is the credit impulse calculated? So the credit impulse basically is a metric that looks at the entities that are able to print outside money, as I call it, so inflationary form of money. It has credit towards the real economy. So those are mostly the government via net deficit. So effectively the government spending more than it has tax, which means the government effectively putting new money, new credit into the system or commercial banks expanding net net their loan book. So commercial bank creating credit out of thin air by lending new money into existence to the public effectively, right? To the private sector. And this is measured in G5. So this is the top five economies in the world. Um, and this is basically measured as the second derivative of credit stock. So you take the, the amount of credit available in the economy, you move to the first derivative, so year-on-year change of this, this credit stock, and then you measure the year-on-year change of the year-on-year change. So it tells you what is the acceleration or deceleration in credit towards the real economy. And this acceleration or deceleration, so basically the curvature of this credit creation lags or anticipates very well with an eight to 12 months uh, lag, depending on which assets are you looking at, several risk assets out there, bond yields, inflation expectation. I can put on charts on S&P, on commodities, but it's very simple as well. It's, it's not a spurious correlation. It's also a macro justified correlation. As I said before, if you pump credit to the economy at some point, this credit will flow, will be used, earnings will go up, you will have literally more purchasing power by inflationary real economy form of money being created. This form of money being created flows through the real economy, earnings go up, risk assets like it, inflation expectation go up, and you have the typical Q4 2020 reflationary trade. It's just there. But the interesting thing is that people forget that you know, this credit impulse, unless it is sustained and the acceleration keeps on going up. So you are running at 100 kilometers an hour, next step is to go 120, not 80, 120. Unless you can go again, the year on year, next year, it's just not going to be able to be up. It has to be down. The other point I'd like to make is that government deficits are the public sector spending money into existence, so spending more than taxes, right? But the point is, what will the private sector do? The private sector is able to offset the public sector spending. And people always tend to look at, at deficits and they say, well, okay, if deficits are up, then inflation expectation needs to be up, the economy needs to grow. But if you look at service and what Americans have done with you know, the, the, the government uh, deficits and the stimulus programs, about 40 to 50% of this has not been spent. It has been used to pay back loans. When a person payback loans, basically they are destroying existing money. They are saying, okay, I levered up before, I took a loan before, but you know the money that the government is now sending me a check, I'm gonna use this check to repay back my loan. So you always have to look at the public sector and the private sector together because they do interact and global credit impulse gives you a very good idea of what is going on in terms of credit creation all over the world by different entities. So the private sector, in this case, is commercial banks for the most being able to create credit, and the government as well via by, uh, by net deficits or net surplus, which is able to create or destroy the amount of money in the economy. So you think the stimulus, the monetary stimulus that is being provided now, 
effective zero interest rates on the short end, and then quantitative easing across the curve at a minimum clip of $120 billion, of course, I'm talking about the US Federal Reserve, you think that that is an insufficiently um, lucrative backdrop for reflationary assets such as commodity stocks and banks to thrive. And you actually have commodities and cyclical stocks like banks in your short category. Uh, tell me how you expect these stocks, which have been on uh, quite, a, quite a run over the past uh, you know, eight months, how do you see these commodities and cyclical bank stocks performing over the next year? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So I would say best flat, and my best case would be for them to drop sort of negative returns over the next 12 months. And the easiest example is bank stocks. So financials, or let's say very high beta uh, sectors of the equity market, financials, especially, they like a steeper curve. And a steeper curve helps them to create margins because they normally have liabilities which are linked to short-term rates and assets that are more long-term duration in nature. So a steeper curve makes them bigger margins, right? It's, it's the bread and butter business of a commercial bank. Now, if the curve is flatter, then you have to imply that future earnings will be lower, right? And banks are, are not companies that generally have a price earning variability, which can justify total return because, you know, as you well know, total return in equities is basically delta in earnings, the dividend yield you lock in, and delta in valuations, right? So let's talk about earnings first. And if you have a flatter curve, which I expect in America, I expect spread between five-year and third-year U.S. government bond to keep on dropping from here. If you expect that as the result of the Federal Reserve having pivoted towards a more hawkish stance and the global credit impulse having peaked, so basically the worst possible combination for future forward growth, which basically tells you the curve has to be flatter. If the curve is flatter, then earnings priced in financials have to come down because banks will not be able to exploit this curvature steepness that much, or at least less than, than currently priced in their future earnings. And from a valuation perspective, as I said before, the high beta sectors of the economy are not the most reliant on this category to make their total return. The, the, the valuation is much more important in, in explaining total return regarding tech stocks or growth stocks, but much less so than financials. And emerging market effects, uh, and, and, and in general, high beta emerging markets, they also, let's say, benefit uh, from a growing global credit impulse because it simply means there is more credit and more economic activity flowing through. And all these, most of these high beta emerging markets are highly exposed to dollar. Uh, or, you know, they have high dollar net and they actually do need flow of dollars. They need global trades, they need exports to pick up. And the global credit impulse is going up, economic activity is higher, and therefore they benefit from this. When global credit impulse turns, they actually have a problem. Okay, so are you are you shorting these stocks? Do you see buying put options, or or you just want to avoid them? Yeah, so uh, I think uh, well, my my only trade, and again, I'm talking for my own personal account and representing myself here, is I think a couple of weeks ago I decided to uh, actively lean short euro stocks, which is an index you know full of financials and you know not so much tech heavy, let's say. So it's it's a relatively high beta um, index out there. Because I think, uh, you know, the high beta sectors of the economy have actually already performed matching the credit impulse as the credit impulse has peaked and the Fed has probably turned hawkish. This is the most vulnerable sector of the economy. Now, if you want to try and play a trans, and you're not sure about whether we are transitioning towards quadrant one or quadrant um, uh, four of my, of my chart, if you're not sure about that, what you can do is you can borrow this trade and you can for example, short your stocks and be long uh, a growth index like NASDAQ, for instance, or you can do the NASDAQ Russell trade. So you're long NASDAQ and you're short Russell. This would work in actually both quadrant one and four, I believe. And the reason why I believe that is if you go back to quadrant one, uh, like it seems we're doing, then actually you get a push from the long NASDAQ trade. Because as you go back into secular trends, the growth stocks are going to do very well, but uh, the, the stocks that are linked to real economic growth are actually going to suffer a bit. And that's what's happening now. 
But even if you move to quadrant four, in that case, you will have one leg of the trade that will suffer the most, and that's the high beta stuff. And the other leg of the trade, which is, you know, the more duration intensive side of your long. So the NASDAQ basically, the growth stock is going to suffer less. So this relative value trade where you are low, long growth and short value, basically, which has worked horribly between uh, September 2020 and March 2021, and it's starting to work again, I think might have some leg to go together with five-year, 30-year flatness in America. And if you want to be more brave, you just short outright the high beta sector of the economy. So you can choose some emerging markets, which are highly exposed to the dollar, for example. You can choose financial stocks or you know, bank stocks or all that high beta stuff. Alfonso, for quad four, you say being long uh, volatility, so either buying calls on the VIX, buying VIX futures, that is frequently a very hard trade for institutional investors to make because it's likely that they are going to lose money unless a bad event happens. And if something bad doesn't happen, they're going to be underperforming their peers who maybe sold futures on the VIX. Can you talk about what it's like being a portfolio manager and how you think about going long or short volatility and maybe the uh, incentives that portfolio managers are presented with? Yeah, that's a great question, Jack. So the people should understand that uh, institutional investors are uh, subject to a certain incentive scheme, uh, which is very tricky. I find it very tricky. So uh, people in these businesses are measured generally on a one month to three months performance basis, maybe six months, but that's the longest you can get. Uh, what that means is that in a very low volatility, uh, very short convexity market, you tend to want to be long uh, the carry trades, any form of carry trades, any form of exposure to credits, uh, carry effectively. Any carry out there, you just want to be long. And the reason why. Sorry, Alfonso, can you explain what carry means? Well, carry in this case means uh, higher coupons effectively sitting on a trade that makes you a little bit of money every day you wait and you stay into the trade. All right, so that's basically the definition. Um, so for instance, if you are a multi-asset uh, mandate and you have uh, you know, also emerging market uh, exposure, you might want to choose to borrow in a currency where it's very cheap to borrow, for example, the yen, just to make an example, you might want to be long Brazilian real. Because, you know, just simply by buying Brazilian real and, and from the asset side, you're going to benefit from interest rates that are much higher than interest rates you have to pay on the yen funding to fund this trade. So this is a typical example of a carry trade involving an emerging market currency. If nothing happens, you're going to pocket the Brazilian real coupons and you'll have to pay back uh, only the yen funding rates, which are much lower. Right? So everybody's doing this sort of trades in a short convexity global volatility environment. Why is everybody doing that? Because they must perform over the next three to six months. So if you expect the central bank to dump in volatility and nothing to happen, you are sucked in this trade. If you stay out of this trade, Jack, and all your other peers are doing that, you're going to be end up underperforming. And maybe you were right in the third quarter or in the fourth quarter, might be way too late. You might be out of a job. So the incentive scheme is very skewed towards, you know, doing these carry trades when the situation is very calm, it's all very pro-cyclical. And then what happens is when a volatility event happens, you couldn't buy optionalities because they're expensive. Being long options is expensive. Tail risk hedging is expensive. You didn't do that because, you know, uh, you know your boss didn't like you losing premium basically over an event that never happens. And you find yourself unbalanced, too much risk on. And it's a little bit like everybody partying in a very small room and the party's nice, but it's 5 a.m. and a few people say, look, I'd like to go home, point out at the door and they say, okay, look, it's a little bit crowded, but maybe we can still get out. They try to get out and then at 7 a.m. they call their friends and they say, wow, you were such an idiot. The party's still ongoing. It's so fun. Why did you go home? And, you know, they, they went home. They lost their job because they went home too early. And then at 7.30 a.m., the music all of a sudden stops and everybody wants to get out the same tiny door at the same time. And that is just not possible. You will not find even a bid in some of these assets. And so buying optionality, you're trying to tail risk catch. So going home at 5 a.m. sometimes might turn to be a great strategy, but the incentive scheme doesn't really allow that too often uh, from an institutional investor perspective. Uh, because you don't want to be the guy that goes home at 5 a.m., although you maybe should be the guy that goes home at 5 a.m. 
Yeah, you saw that cyclicality in volatility when after 2008, every single portfolio manager wanted volatility. So they went long the VIX, they bought into tail risk funds, and then that crowd was traded. There wasn't a huge risk off event, so everyone lost money there. Then people became converted back to shorting volatility until you had the Volmageddon in, uh, I think, 2018. Uh, Alfonso, tell me a little bit how you're thinking about volatility um, as investment, just just as not within the portfolio industry, but as you know, someone who's looking to construct a portfolio. The VIX, I think, is at pre-pandemic lows, somewhere around 15. But I think the, the U index uh, is actually at all-time highs. So how are you thinking about the volatility market now? Yeah, well, this goes back again to, uh, I don't know whether you saw it, but there was a good interview, I think, from Taleb and Universa, which is their founder or something like that. It used to be, uh, used to do, or probably still does, still risk hedging for institutional clients. So what Taleb and their friends do is they try to show up to an institutional investor and they say, look, um, I have a tail hedging risk program for you. And this is going to increase your absolute return. And people are like, what? Tail hedging risk increase absolute return? That, that actually doesn't work. And that is also because this, the, the, the whole financial industry is built on the concept of diversification. So you want to have a bunch of assets and some of them are supposed to effectively protect you in downside risks, right? So it assumes a negative correlation between an asset and another. So the typical example is stocks and bonds. Stock go ups and uh, stocks go up and bonds go down and vice versa. Now, one of the points that these correlations can clearly break and when systemic crisis and a liquidity crisis and the more the system becomes over leveraged, the more chances there are that, you know, because you're over leveraged, when there is a margin call, you're going to sell anything you can get your hands on, bonds, gold, anything you can, as long as you can survive by paying back your margin call. Now, so these correlations, negative correlations are not always there, but they are uh, in the textbooks, they're taught as your standard way, effectively, to dampen risk. So what you're doing in that case is you are effectively proxy hedging yourself. You have risk assets, and then you look for a proxy asset class that is able to uh, protect you against downsides. Now, the other way to do this would be to do tail hedging. Tail hedging, so buying optionalities and buying volatility in your, in your example. Um, the problem with this strategy is that it upfront costs premium. And up until the last 20, 30 years, the reason why bonds were very popular as a hedging mechanism is that they had positive carry. So you could have something that was negatively correlated to your risky asset and that would make you carry in the meantime. Today, if you use bonds to do that, in real terms, you're literally paying premium. So five-year treasury has a real negative yield of negative one and a half percent or so, right? So Inflation adjusted terms, you're paying a coupon of one and a half percent to use uh, treasuries as your hedging mechanism for a multi asset portfolio. So, this I think is increasingly, um, you know, the attractiveness of some of these optionality strategies that also have a cost, but the payoff today of using optionality strategies to protect your downside, I think, is much more convex than using bonds as your downside protection because you're getting closer and closer to the zero lower bound in America or to the effective lower bound all over the world. So the, you know, the payoff of your hedge is not convex anymore as you want it to be, but it's rather linear. And actually the cost in real terms of owning these bonds is pretty hefty all over the world. And so I think the interest for optionality is hedging strategies going up. Now let's go to asset allocation within fixed income. I was speaking to an investor recently who is somewhat of an inflationist, he thinks inflation is going to uh, you know, be, be higher than the market anticipates. And so he was orienting his portfolio away from duration and into those interest rate, um, you know, the low interest rate sensitivity assets like floating rate, debt, high yield. So basically taking more credit risk and taking less interest rate risk, less duration. How is your disinflationary view informing your asset allocation within fixed income? I, I presume the opposite. So again, from my personal account and not from my employer, just to make sure. Um, so I'm a European, I'm based in Europe. So I have the amazing optionality to own dollar bonds as a non-dollar based investor. And that's just amazing. I mean, one of the reasons why I still own bonds in my portfolio, long and dollar bonds, 
despite of what I said before, is that in real terms, 30-year Treasury yields offer 0% real interest rates, 2% implied real interest rates. So I'm not paying a premium in principle to own these bonds from a carry perspective. And I get exposure to two things. I get exposure to the dollar and I get exposure to the term premium. So when a crisis hit or when the economy is slowing down, as we discussed before, long-term forward nominal growth is priced down and therefore nominal yields tend to drop. I also tend to think that there are structurally deflationary forces out there that are mostly demographics. We have seen the chart on labor supply before, stagnant productivity, over-leverage, misallocation of capital, technology, so on and so forth. Those forces are very, very, very strong and short-term sugar rush driven credit impulse can only cyclically give us the feeling for few quarters that we are living in regime change. There is no regime change. We've been talking about regime change for now 10 years. QE is supposed to be regime change. During the taper time, there was a regime change. And then um, uh, China was uh, pumping credit all over the place. That's a regime change. Trump doing a one trillion almost fiscal stimulus without debt negative and unemployment rate at three and a half percent. That was supposed to be a regime change, no regime change. Reaction from the governments from the pandemic, so the coordination of fiscal policies and monetary policies. That must be the regime change, right? Well, we have seen that in Japan for seven years. Japanese government has printed 7% deficits on average, 6% deficits for the last seven years. DOJ is buying those bonds. Where is the inflation? I, I, I don't see that. <laughs> I still don't see that. So, of course, we're going to have few quarters of inflation. It is there. One-year inflation swaps are 3.7% in America. So on average, inflation swap market expects 3.7% inflation over the next 12 months. I do agree. I do agree. Supply bottlenecks are there. The amount of credit inputs being printed was just immense. So we're going to see a very strong temporary sugar rush credit impulse driven reflationary theme. But then I think we're almost at the end. So over the next two to three quarters, we're going to go back into these deflationary forces I just described. The world is way over leveraged. There is no appetite for productive investments out there. Actually, there is no outlet for productive investments out there. Calling the debasing has distorted incentive schemes. Zombie companies are kept alive. Capitalism is allocated. This is not an inflationary world. And so if you go back to your structural deflationary forces, my own allocation is, yes, to remain long long and dollar bonds so I can actually have a double whammy of dollar appreciating during the crisis um, and a term premium compressing so the long end coming in uh, so I, I still use them and definitely right now I wouldn't be short one of the questions I have for people that want to be short today is if I check the consensus of 20 analysts out there from all the major banks I can tell you Jack every single one of them is short Maybe exception of two guys, HSBC. Short the dollar or short bonds? Short bonds. Yeah. So maybe HSBC is not short. Maybe two or three guys are not short. 18 will be short. Short above the market implied forwards. So we're talking market implied forwards by year end for 10-year treasuries, 165%. People will say it has to be 2% or higher. This will be the average analyst expectation, which I would also think it reflects market positioning. People want to be short. People believe tapering from the Federal Reserve actually will increase yields. I do think over the long end, it does reduce yields because as the central bank turns hawkish, it reduces long-term nominal implied growth and it brings down uh, forward yields, long-end yields, as it has already been doing over the last few months. This is not the moment to be short bonds. And I think on a structural basis, it's never the moment to be short bonds. And what about the dollar? We had a lot of dollar shorts earlier in the year that have been squeezed out. How are you thinking about the dollar? You, you hinted at it earlier. Yeah. So uh, I would say uh, the dollar here is more likely to appreciate than to depreciate. And again, this is predicated on my assumption that the Fed will proceed with policy tightening. Actually, our data, uh, like the decent payroll report we had with U6 dropping below 10%, I look at the broad unemployment rate that rather than U3, I find that a much better measure of the slack in the labor market than U3 is. So U6 has dropped below 10%, revisioning the NFP of last month and 850,000 NFP um, this month. I think these hard data uh, will remain relatively positive for the next two, three months, and it is going to encourage the Fed to try and get off uh, the zero lower bound. And as they do, what happens is that 
front-end real rates go up for the wrong reasons. So again, that means that inflation expectation at some point will peak even at the short end and will start to drop because we price in, you know, this fiscal sugar cliff that I was describing before. So inflation expectation drop a bit at the short end and the pivot of the Fed does help. Nominal interest rates at the short end go up as a result of people repricing the hiking cycle. So short-term real interest rates go up. And when they do go up, the dollar attracts flows. So if you are a multi-asset manager with different outlets for different effects, what you look at is to try and capitalize on the better risk-free real return out there available. And now risk-free real returns in America dropped largely up to a point where five-year treasuries uh, yielded negative one and a half percent in real basis. And, you know, this basically um, shrunk the differential between dollar real yields and other currencies real yields. Now, this, as these real yields go up again at the front end in America, this is my base assumption, then dollar will start to appreciate again because the sister in real yields actually opens up again in favor of the dollar. And this attracts some, some flows basically going back there. Alfonso, how are you thinking about Bitcoin? <laughs> I knew this question was coming. Saved it to so, the end. <laughs> This is the most polarized discussion on an asset class I've ever seen. It's impressive. So it's very difficult to have a mature discussion about this, this uh, crypto asset. It's not a currency, it's a digital asset. Um, so how do I think of it? I think of it as a very, very, very high beta expression of most of the structural trends I was discussing before. So if you continue to push real interest rates below real growth to make sure you know, your, your, your huge amount of leverage is somehow sustainable and you can kick the can down the road, if you keep on with this financial repression, which I think is the base case for governments to try and survive this huge leverage we have created, if you continue this way, people will look for an alternative outlet for their capital to make sure the purchasing power is somehow better protected than by putting money in a bank account earning 0% nominal yields and being deflated away by 2% inflation a year, right? I mean, people at some point will try to find a better outlet for their savings to preserve their purchasing power. Now, there are more traditional asset classes, so real estate, equities, credits, et cetera, et cetera, to do that. But I guess at some point, left, probably you can have a look as well at this very high beta emerging asset class out there, which is digital assets, which I think might deserve a place in an institutional portfolio as long as you can handle the volatility. And here we're talking about, you know, stuff that has a daily implied ball of 4%. And this is massive. So if you can if you can stomach that and you have a long-term view, I don't have a problem with a very small allocation percentage of your portfolio into that asset. If you don't like it because you cannot stomach the volatility or you don't believe it is an alternative outlet to avoid negative real rates and your purchasing power to drop, then we can discuss about it. But I find it very difficult to discuss about it with somebody because it's a very polarized topic when there are maximalists that think Bitcoin standard is here to come instead of the gold standard. I don't think that fixed money supply systems can work whether they're pegged to gold or Bitcoin. We have tried that and it didn't work. We can discuss that maybe in the next interview. But you know, those are the maximalists and there are the naysayers that say, look, uh, this is just bullocks. It has no intrinsic value, blah, blah, blah. I find that a little bit to polarize. Well, Alfonso, I feel like I have more questions now than I did at the beginning of the interview. I, I feel like that's always a sign that we, we had a great guest and that's that's what we, we, you were. I, I'd love to have you back on Real Vision. Alfonso, um, is, there, is there a parting message you want to leave our audience with? It can be about asset allocation. It can be about macro your macro framework. It can be about advice about how you learned in markets. Um, yeah, anything you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, well, two pieces of advice I can give to somebody uh, trying to manage and to keep the flow to their purchasing power, managing their savings, is do not be emotionally attached to an idea. Be flexible. If the facts are changing, you change your mind. Stop out. Stop out of your ego. Just, you know, if you're wrong, just recognize you're wrong and move to the next idea. Never be emotionally attached to a trade. That's a lesson they learned the hard way, but I think it's, it's a very relevant one. And the second one is do not proxy hedge. If you think something is going wrong and you own exactly the asset in the portfolio, the best way to hedge that is to sell that asset. 
not to find any other way to proxy hedge. Don't, don't overcomplicate it. That's my second hint. And then the third one would be uh, that if you like this interview and you'd like to follow me, I have this newsletter uh, on Substack. It's free. It's called The Macro Compass. You can just look it up and subscribe if you, if you like. Yeah, it is, it is a very good newsletter. Alfonso, thank you so much. Um, it's been wonderful having you on Real Vision. Thanks, Jack. My pleasure. I hope to see you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.